Okay, hello. Good evening, everybody. Uh, really good to be here and welcome to this evening's discussion. This evening's discussion is hosted by the Forum for European Philosophy and the Department of Economics at the University of Warwick. I'm Siobhan Benita. Um, I'm co-director of the Warwick Policy Lab and it's my job this evening to chair this evening's discussion, to keep this panel to time and really my biggest job is to try and engage the audience so please as we go through the presentations be thinking about the questions that you want to ask because we're going to come to you as early as possible and try and get this session to be as interactive as possible. The topic of tonight's discussion is do we need to shake up social sciences? And we've got a formidable panel here this evening who are going to try and help us answer that question. So let me just quickly introduce the panel this evening. So I have here Nicholas Christakis, who is the sole Goldman Family Professor of Social and Natural Science at Yale University. Nicholas is a social scientist and a physician, and he conducts research on social factors that affect health, healthcare, and longevity. Nicholas also directs the Human Nature Lab at Yale University, and he's the co-director of the Yale Institute for Network Science. In 2009, Nicholas was named in Time magazine's list of the 100 most influential people in the world. So, Nicholas, we're expecting great things from you. If I could have just affected my children, that would be influence. Um, on my left here, I have Amanda Goodall. Amanda is a senior lecturer in the Department of Management at the Cass Business School. Um, Amanda's got a, an unusual route into academia. She started her career in the fashion industry, followed by a decade in the UK charitable sector. Amanda's research is focused on leadership and organisational performance, and she draws on empirical work in hospitals, universities, as well as some really highly competitive fields such as Formula One championships and the arts. Next to Amanda, we have Patrick Dunleavy. Patrick is Professor of Political Science and Public Policy in the Government Department here at the LSE. He's also co-director of Democratic Audit and chair of the LSE Public Policy Group, which I think he founded himself in 1992. Patrick is a frequent blogger on the LSE's British Politics and Policy site, and he's also got a very active Twitter account since 2010, commenting mainly on British politics, which reminds me that if you want to follow on Twitter this evening, the suggested hashtag for the evening is hashtag LSE Social Sciences, so please do follow that. Um, next to Patrick, we have Andrew Oswald. Andrew is Professor of Economics at the University of Warwick. He also serves on the Board of Editors of Science currently. And Andrew's biography, I googled all of our panel members, Andrew biogra Andrew's biography states that he has worked during his career on seven main areas, from trade unions to oil prices. But his more recent work lies at the border between economics and behavioural science and includes the empirical study of human happiness. He's previously held posts at Oxford, the London School of Economics, Princeton and Harvard. So we really do have um, a very good panel here this evening. So welcome to our panel. The format for the evening... Is going to be, I'm going to invite the panel members to give us kind of five to seven minutes introduction on the topic, really just to set the scene. Then I'm going to, going to give the panel a very quick opportunity to themselves respond to what their other panel members have said. And then after that, as I said, I'm going to open it up to you guys. So you guys are going to make the evening what it is this evening. So with no further ado, I'm going to ask Nicholas, please, to start us off with his presentation. 
Thank you very much for that introduction. Um, so uh, as Siobhan said, I'm a physician and a social scientist, and for the last five or ten years or so, I've been focusing my work in the area of social networks and biosocial science, and I've done a little work in behavior genetics. And, um, and while I think there's a lot of cool work at the intersection of the natural and the social sciences, my thoughts about the social sciences are, I hope, more than just parochial, having to do with the kinds of things that I've been interested in. And it's partly because I love the social sciences so much, and it's partly because I think we have so much to offer that I think we need to think deeply about what it is that we are doing. Um, I think that the social sciences are a science for the 21st century. I think that in the 20th century, we look to the physical and biological sciences for ways of advancing human welfare, things that had to do with the discovery of plastics or antibiotics or polymer chemistry and nuclear energy and so forth. But I think the 21st century challenges are much more likely to be behavioral in nature, and I think we have a tremendous amount to offer more, I would say, than the, natural, than the biological and physical sciences in terms of advancing human welfare. And I think we can do better to make our case and to enhance our relevance and this topic was illustrated for me by the following observation. About a year or so ago, I was sitting around talking to my friends, and it suddenly dawned on me that all the departments that I was familiar with from my medical education were gone. The Department of Anatomy, the Department of Histology, the Department of Physiology, the Department of Biochemistry, those departments no longer existed in, in such name. And all the departments and had been replaced with departments of systems biology and, and neuroscience and molecular biophysics and biochemistry. But all the social science departments with which I was familiar from my doctoral training in sociology, they were all still there. Economics, anthropology, political science, sociology, and psychology. And so I began to reflect on what did this mean, if anything, and was it simply a matter of nomenclature, that the nomenclature hadn't changed, or was there something deeper that this difference uh, suggested? And I began to, and there are exceptions, of course, to this. Here at LSC, for example, you have a Department of Economic History or a Department of Geography and the Environment. So this is not the case that this is, this is a kind of stylized fact, right? It's a kind of a summary of what's happening in the world. It's not always the case that this is this way. But there are very few medical schools that have any of those departments anymore. And so I began to think about whether um, there might be better ways of organizing ourselves and our institutions and our human capital uh, to meet what I thought might be pertinent 21st century challenges and to position ourselves on the scientific frontier. Because what I think that the natural sciences seem to be particularly good at doing is they're seemingly able to organize themselves and their institutional arrangements to match where the scientific frontier is. So they say, we've figured out this problem pretty much. We're going to keep some people who are studying this problem and can teach histology, pharmacology, biochemistry, physiology, and so forth. But we're going to redeploy manpower to where the newest and most important and most relevant questions are. And so the question is, is there a way of organizing their institutions, their institutional arrangements, their departments, such as to facilitate being where the scientific frontier is? And what, if anything, might we learn from them? Which is not to say, incidentally, that they have nothing to learn from us, right? Just because we can learn something from them doesn't mean they can't learn something from us. So, um, and I think we should be able, like the natural scientists, to declare victory and move on. I think we should be able to say, you know, we've pretty much figured this topic out. We're going to continue to teach this topic. It's a central topic in our field. Medical students need to learn anatomy. They need to learn neurophysiology. But we're no longer going to be having a department of anatomy with professors that study gross anatomy. That was settled in the 17th century. Or actually the most recent, well, never mind when the most recent discoveries were. So, um, so, uh, so we should be able to say, you know, we've pretty much figured this topic out. We have gone into the natural world. We have studied it. We've observed it. We think we get it. Now we're moving. 
Um, and I think we should be able to match our institutional arrangements to where the scientific frontier is. And I think the social sciences are changing. And even if we don't want them to change, they're going to change because of at least three different things. First, I think that a biological hurricane is approaching the social sciences. I think new discoveries in neuroscience and in genomics are going to unavoidably impinge on what we're doing and, and ask us deep and fundamental questions, which if we are smart, we will rise to and, and inform. We will ask questions as well of our interlocutors. Second, I think we are in an era which many have observed of big data or massive passive data. So, or a kind of era of computational social science. If, if you had asked social scientists 20 years ago, many social scientists 20 years ago, what powers they dreamed of having, they would have said, it would be unbelievable if we could have a little tiny Black Hawk helicopter, and if it could fly on top of you and monitor where you are and who you're talking to and what you're buying and what you're thinking, and if it could do that for a whole city of people, and in real time, that would be amazing to have that kind of data, that purchase, that insight into social dynamics and human behavior. And of course, that's exactly what we have nowadays. And in fact, in many ways, I think we are at the era just before Kepler, where Tycho Brahe collected all these data about the stars that made it possible for the Keplerian revolution. So we have a scope and a range of data that I think offer us tremendous opportunities we'd be very foolish not to grasp. And the third thing I think that's happening is a rediscovery in the social science of experiments. We always did experiments. There's a long tradition, especially in psychology, of experimentation. But beginning in the 1950s, partly because of the invention of regression modeling techniques and survey methods, and because of our long history as well of ethnographic approaches, we have tended to neglect experimentation. But we are seeing a resurgent interest in conducting experiments in the social sciences, one I also think we should embrace. Now, when we say, when I first got married to my wife, I would say to her, you know, sweetie, I really love those CDs. And she would say to me, we were in our 20s, so immature, and she would say to me, uh, you don't like my other CDs? And uh, the CDs are, oh, you guys don't know, music. I would say, I really like this music. <laughs> I really like these uh, compact discs, this music. And she would say, you don't like my other music. So when I say that these are important things and that, uh, that I like or that we should pay attention to, it doesn't mean to the exclusion of other things. So, um, and I also think we need to make conceptual shifts. And with my last remaining minute or minute and a half, I'd like to highlight an example from my own field. Because I'm beginning to wonder what it would mean to shift our focus of inquiry from the nodes, from the people in social networks, to the edges, to the ties in social networks. So uh, some of you may be familiar with Japan, um, but in, the, in, in, in Western Europe and in the United States, the way we organize our cities is we have streets that have names, and then by and large, the houses are numerically ordered one after another in order as you move from one end of the street to the other. And if you ask an American, uh, what, what, what do you call the blocks? We would say the blocks don't have names. The blocks are, are, are the spaces between the streets. Now, if you go to Japan, it's precisely the opposite. The, the, the blocks have names, and the houses are numbered in the order in which they were built on the block. And if you ask, this sort of seems crazy to us, and if you ask a Japanese person, what are the streets? They would say the streets don't have names. The streets are the spaces between the blocks. So I actually think you can begin to think about human beings this way. From my perspective, where I sit, the conceptual shift that I want to see us is what makes us think people are so important? Maybe it's the ties between us that are the really important thing. Maybe it's those ties that have an enduring reality, and we just come and go are endlessly replaced. 
It's a classic Durkheimian idea, right? That there's a level of suicide in a particular population, in a particular religion that stays the same even though the people change. So I think it's possible to resurrect some of these ideas, reapply them in a kind of a frontier way, and to begin to study things like emergent properties of social systems using new data, new experiments, new insights from biology, and to do this in a way that enhances human welfare in the 21st century. Thank you. Okay, thanks very much, Lisa. We're not going to take questions there, but please hold on to some of those key things around why social sciences might be stuck the way they are and whether some of those forces that you were talking about, the hurricanes, the big data, are going to help drag social sciences uh, maybe into a different space. So, But first I'm going to ask uh, now Patrick, please. Patrick, you can give us your presentation. Um, I'm going to be talking uh, partly in response to Nicholas's very interesting talk and his very interesting article, which created a big... Uh, a big debate, and if any of you have not seen it, you can, you can catch up with it, I think, on LSE Impact blog, which is one of the blogs that we run here. Um, and I'm going to be talking really uh, on the basis of this little book that I've uh, just produced with Jane Tinker, sitting back here, and Simon Basto, who's not here. Uh, but, uh, so very much a product of collective work. And the first thing to think about is, well, what do we mean when we say the social sciences? And uh, here's what we mean in, in the book, and one of the things you can check pretty quickly is that Nicholas is right, that the names of the disciplines are pretty much the same. Uh, and these, you know, there's some new additions in there, finance perhaps wasn't so pr- present before, but a lot of this, these uh, uh, discipline names have been around for a very long time. And of course the social sciences overlaps with STEM disciplines in geography, health studies, psychology, information systems, overlaps a lot also with the humanities. So around about a third of British academics work in the social sciences, uh, although they don't get a third of the funding. (laughs) (laughs) No, they don't, yeah. So actually, I think that social sciences are advancing very rapidly. I mean, despite the stagnation of the department names, I rather think this is rather like if we were to... If we were to take a British house or an American house, uh, as it was being built in, let's say, 1900, and then look at uh, something that was being built in 2015, we might see something that looks uh, very, very similar. But actually, the internal status of the house, you know, what it's built of, what the materials are, what the systems are embodied in it, is completely, completely different from 100 years ago. And I, I think that's true of most of our social science departments. They look as if they're the same, but actually inside the, uh, the shells of these uh, departments, people are doing very different things. And in particular, I think um, we're at a really accelerating, very key point in the takeoff of social sciences towards um, digital scholarship practices, which I always sum up by my slogan that if you say it quickly enough, sounds like you know what you're saying. Bigger, better, shorter, faster, free. You can try it yourselves. Um, Big data has already been mentioned by Nicholas, and I think that's a really important thing, the access to massive administrative data, and now to textual data, and textual data from any walk of life and any aspect of life. And soon, not too far down the track, there will be visual and audiovisual data uh, with the same level of facility as we've got textual data. We've also got some really interesting new incursions into the social sciences from STEM sciences in methods terms. So maths and physics-based analysis, if you're still doing economic regression and you'll want to be a tech head 10 years from now, 
I would say learn code. Uh, software engineering and IT coding, systematic review, uh, very important. You know, the social sciences and even more so the humanities suffer from a kind of self-harm, of very poor citations, very poor literature surveying, very poor uh, referencing of uh, information, all of which is beginning to change now in very important ways. And much better improved handling of qualitative data, which is beginning to you know, reverse impact into medicine and other fields. So I think there's also a lot of pooling and methods and evidence criteria between STEM sciences and social sciences that wasn't there before. And that particularly is important in the area, not so much of big data, but of the kind of merely large data. So classically, the problem in the social sciences was you had very small data sets. They were a sample. You had a great deal of difficulty in establishing that what was true in the data set you had was true in the population. But now we're moving into an era where we can have very large data sets. They're not necessarily big data in the classical sense that perhaps uh, Nicholas was talking about. But they are exhaustive in scope in the sense that they include all the N. And you don't need to bother with significance tests. They're scalable. There's large volume of data. They update quickly, if not in real time, which I think is a bit ambitious still. Um, and they're very flexible. So you can get a lot out of them from multiple different purposes. And what that really means is, is anybody in the audience is still working on, you know, the kind of thing people used to do 10 years ago, I don't know, a comparative analysis of 100 countries and health inequality across 100 cases, you know, you should junk all that and really sort of think about moving into, into uh, the sort of larger data era that we're now in. Now, Nicholas also, I think, was painting a contrast to what was well summed up by um, Randall Collins, um, who argued that the physical sciences since the late 1800s have been uh, characterized by high consensus and rapid advance. So the physical sciences work and they, because social status inside the physical sciences attaches to people who do advances, and so there's a strong competitive push to advance the frontier, and there's a strong consolidation of what's lying behind the frontier and a, a push for consensus on, on what remains inside the frontier. So attention focuses particularly on the frontier. And Nicholas's point was that the departmental structures that he's seen change so much in the US reflect that. And the contrast really was with the social sciences, where traditionally... There was low consensus where there were theoretical debates where everybody pulled up the roots of the thing in order to examine the conceptual underpinnings, the ontology of the state or the meaning of inequality or whatever it was. And nobody could agree on how to define terms and people talked past each other and uh, a lot of work was uh, repetitive or ideologically coloured or whatever. So we had rather slow, stalled or inconclusive advance. Now, that hasn't wholly changed, but I do think we've moved now in the social sciences to a new era of moderate consensus. It's not complete consensus, it's not high consensus like the STEM sciences, but it's moderate, and to an era of rapid advance. So the social sciences sit now in a developing map of knowledge, which I've talked about already before, but I'll, I'll just... Uh, quickly recap here. Essentially, the concept of natural physical sciences is a completely redundant and out-of-date and meaningless concept. 
There are really three foci of study in the world. There are natural systems, most of which are off-planet. The only ones that are on-planet are geophysical systems. And then the rest of the world can really be divided into two categories. Human-dominated systems are things that we ourselves have built. They are the aspects of our civilization. So all of our cities, our markets, our IT, our information systems, our knowledge systems, our engineering, and medicine itself, of course, are human-dominated systems. And there, there's a really strong overlap between the social sciences and the uh, STEM sciences, except at LSE, which is the worst place in the world to study this overlap, uh, because we only have the social sciences involved. But anyway, uh, it's very strong... Uh, connection there, and I think uh, from what uh, Nicholas was saying, we were totally agreeing on that. And then the, the other big area is what we might call human influence systems, where the human component is not, not the dominant component, but it is an important component, and there's been a huge change. The whole discussion about whether we've entered the Anthropocene as a geological era is a recognition of the fact that humanity has begun to decisively restructure many of our global systems, including, for example, climate change. And actually, a lot of work is being done in a social scientific mode by scientists uh, in this area in, in a really not terribly good way. So there's a huge opportunity for social scientists to get out there and uh, get better theories and better methods and better analysis. So really, I think the, the area where we need to see most change is not in the social sciences, but in the physical sciences. The whole concept of integrated physical sciences needs to be broken up, and it needs to be thought about in terms of human-dominated, human-influenced, and natural systems, with the natural systems pretty much residualizing. So also we're in an era where, traditionally, whenever anybody said you should cooperate across social science and STEM, people would raise 101 different barriers, but we have progressed enormously in what uh, cross-disciplinary research looks like, partly because of uh, research being undertaken outside universities and organisations, which is much more joined up than academic research. So we've moved really from a model of disciplinary research plus a little bit of remote consultancy in the early post-war period now to towards decisively, I'd say, transdisciplinary research. Let me finish with two slides. One about, well, how are things changing? Social media is a big area of change. And this is a comparison done by Nature earlier this year between you know, how scientists were using social media and how social scientists and arts and humanities people were using uh, social media. And the interesting thing, in many ways, is that they're very, very similar. So social scientists are very big in Google Scholar and big on ResearchGate not so big on LinkedIn, bigger on Facebook and Twitter, uh, and uh, bigger on academia.edu than the physical sciences. But there's a huge commonality of practice there, and that's very important and represents a huge change for the younger, I'd say, hipster generation, if it wasn't uh, uh, more people who are a little bit shaking the, the mould a bit and moving on. So that's an area of uh, indication where I think we can see a lot of convergence. And there's other areas too. This is a, a slide taken from a really big study by Google of the extent to which um, <coughs> non-elite journals are cited 
in different uh, disciplines. And they looked at between 1995 and 2013, and they found that the proportion of overall citations to non-elite journals defined as not the top 10 in each field uh, grew from 27% in 1995 to 47% in 2013. The interesting thing here is that the social scientist groups, which are the social science of the pink line and the business and economics this brown line here, show a flatter pattern. So that there was always a higher citation of non-elite journals in these disciplines, but there's been less of a change in these disciplines compared with, let's say, computer science or medicine and Nicholas's other field. So I'm a bit worried that the social scientists are a bit conservative uh, and that the current uh, addiction to peer review and addiction to sort of orthodox journal hierarchies is overdeveloped and in many ways still going the wrong way in the social sciences. But that's the only area where I'm at all uh, worried. So let me uh, thank you for listening and uh, conclude with a little advert for the book. Uh, just so. <laughs> Thank you, Patrick. I'm going to let Amanda respond straight away. And there was a slightly different um, take on it from Patrick there, which is that social sciences are already embracing some of these new things, if not big data, then at least large data, um, and if not high consensus, then at least moderate consensus. So the direction of travel is in the right direction, at least. Amanda, over to you. Yeah, thank you. Thank you. Um, so uh, a number of years ago, in 2006, in fact, I did uh, a small study which was outside of my, my main area of research, and I asked the question, to what extent are the social sciences addressing the issue of climate change? Um, as Siobhan said, I came to the voluntary sector. I'd worked with organizations like Greenpeace. And um, I, as far as I was concerned, it was the social sciences, really, that were going to have to address the issue of changing human behavior. So what I did was I counted the number of articles that mentioned global warming or climate change in the title, abstract, or keywords. I did this in the top 30 journals by impact factor using the web of science in the disciplines of management and business, economics, sociology, and political science. And I looked at it between the years of 1970 and 2006. And I found just one article in every 1,000 articles mentioned climate change or global warming. So not a great exposure in these top articles. In these top journals, here you can see um, the numbers don't really probably mean too much to you, but you can see nine in business and management out of 31 articles in that period, 63 in economics out of 51,000, 40 in uh, sociology out of 25,000, and 11 in political science. So I wondered, because I knew we were, we were going to have this debate and because we did the piece in Times Higher Ed, I thought, well, let me have a look and see if anything's changed. So I went back to the same top... 30 journals and it, there has been a slight improvement and I was quite relieved and quite pleased to see that now it's gone up to approximately 1% of articles in the same top 30 journals in those same four disciplinary fields and they mention climate change or global warming in the same places so these are those uh, new numbers, 51 out of 13,000 etc and you can see these numbers are not exactly very high now if we look at the top 10 journals, 
See, the thing is, what Patrick talks about in terms of looking at, at the, the non-highly cited, the non-important journals, if you like, the ones that are high up the rankings, is it's great. And we all publish in a variety of journals. I'm in a business school. I publish in lots of different places, media, non-technical articles. But in fact, unfortunately, I won't get promoted unless I publish in these, these so-called four-star journal articles. So when I look at the top ten journals, these are the four-star ones that people in this room that are faculty members will know that the REF and the, its predecessor, the research deck size, focus on. So these are important. And if you look just within the top ten journals, um, you will see that, that climate change and global warming drop to half a percent. And these are the numbers. So they're, they're, they're pretty pathetic, really. Four in business and management out of nearly 3,000, 14 in economics out of 5,000. These are the same, um, these are the very, very top, top journals. Um, 14 in sociology and 46 in political science. And you'd think that was really good for political science, wouldn't you? Until you realise that the, the most prestigious journal in political science, American Political Science Review, has never published an article mentioning global warming or climate change. Now, the reason I think this is important is because of what I said if we want to get promoted, we have to write articles in the top journals. If somebody who wants to get tenure, a young faculty member, they, want to, they have to get their publications in the top journals. So what the top journals do is very, very important. And if very few of them are publishing in climate change or the area of climate change, then it means that these people are just going to follow the ones that are, that are published, follow the authors that are published, and add a little bit to those. And the cycle continues. And that's my, my worry. So according to the World Meteorological Organization, CO2 levels increased more between 2012 and 2013 than during any year since 1984. And I'm just going to leave you with this question. Is social science really doing enough? Thank you. Thanks, Amanda. So posing some really um, really fundamental questions then around if we're talking about do we need to shake up social sciences, are the incentives, the professional incentive structures that we have actually going to help or hinder us doing that? So some really fundamental questions. Over to Andrew for the last presentation. Well, thank you very much. It's a great pleasure to be here, and I should declare right from the outset that I'm basically a big fan of Nicholas Christakis. <laughs> so I'm going to sign up, approximately speaking, to the same views. But of course, I'll have a, my own uh, special, I viewed a special take on it. I'd like you to think about the structure of this room. Let's think about the left wall as I look at it and imagine that that is the population of the social science journals research. So over there, we have a kind of representation of all the economics journals, people are looking around for them, the economics <laughs> journals and the sociology journals and the rest. And on this wall, let's think of that as the natural sciences literature, at least a very big part of it, medicine and psychiatry, biochemistry, brain sciences, all sorts of uh, human sciences, but from the natural science perspective. Now, if we had a, a visitor on a spacecraft from Venus, he or she, maybe she, might think that it, it's rather strange to have that huge literature there proceeding, parallel but separate, from that natural sciences literature. Why? Because, of course, from the point of view of the person from Venus, both these literatures 
study exactly the same kind of animal, an animal we call human beings. And I think that visitor from space would have a point there. Now, it could be natural for this literature largely to have proceeded independently of that and vice versa. And, of course, there are a few people, including Nicholas, who overlap a little bit, but especially in the way we teach undergraduates all over the Western world, I hope you might agree that, especially from their perspective, these two walls never touch. Now, is that a sensible thing? Let me talk you through a few examples to make us worry. There's a big literature in economics on so-called herd behaviour. You will find this especially in financial economics, but in lots and lots of parts of economics. If you go to the web of science and you type in herd behaviour, or even just the word herd, H-E-R-D, and you do a search across all of the sciences and the social sciences, you'll find that there are about 30,000 articles. You can do the check. And if you order them by the number of times they've been cited, mentioned by others, which is some measure of their importance, there's one very clear winner. An article written in 1971 in the Journal of Theoretical Biology by W.D. Hamilton, William Hamilton. And that, it's, it's worth a read. It's a lovely little piece of relatively simple applied mathematics about how a rational herd would behave. And that is the standard theory of herd behavior in, I think it's fair to say, the natural sciences. But if you then search on all of the articles, there's many of them in the social sciences, particularly in economics, as far as I can ascertain, no article published in an economics journal has ever cited that article by W.D. Hamilton, which is the standard theory of animal behavior in herds. Now, it's possible that humans are such a special kind of animal that you can ignore the standard theory developed by W.D. Hamilton. I'm here to tell you that would be quite false because it's appropriate, in my judgment, to think about herds of humans in exactly the same way. But it's a possibility. Here, I just want to raise that as a, a, just a stark fact that illustrates the, the division, the parallelism of those two walls, I think. Here's another example. This is particularly close to my heart. This is from the social sciences and the behavioural sciences, there's now a lot of evidence that if you're aged 45, then you're in a kind of midlife nadir. I'm terribly sorry. <laughs> Across many of these behavioural sciences, there's, there's mounting evidence now, known for about 20 years in more than 100 countries, that as an approximation, mental well-being traces out a quadratic equation over the bulk of the lifespan. Not right at the end, but the, the bulk. For 20 years, we've been looking for a social science explanation for that giant U-shape that you are sliding along, very probably right now. But two years ago, in the proceedings of the National Academy of Science, a paper was published providing evidence that great apes, chimpanzees and orangutans, seem to have exactly the same U-shape, scaled a little bit by their different lifespan. Now, that article is either wrong, or else it means that very probably for 20 years... Social scientists have been looking in the social science cupboard for an explanation for this thing that probably doesn't lie in the social science cupboard. We're probably going to have to find, of course we're right up against the frontier here, but we're probably going to have to find an explanation for the giant quadratic equation of life in, well, who knows, hormones, brain science patterns, we just don't know. But it may not be anything to do with divorce laws, transport systems, the housing system in the Western world. It could be very deep inside us as animals. 
And that's another example. Can it be sensible to keep this wall so distinct from that wall? Here's another. As was mentioned, in elite economics and political science journals now, there is what one could call an obsession with causality. I mean, who could be against understanding cause and effect? But there's an obsession about it where it's more or less impossible now to get an applied research paper published in those kinds of journals unless you have a laboratory experiment, this was somewhat alluded to, or a very, very clean natural experiment. Yet if we go back into the history, say, of medicine, think back to 1950 in the British Medical Journal, a young man then unknown called Richard Doll, D-O-L-L, published a paper writing down a correlation taken from London hospitals just a mile or two from here, showing, or at least explaining the data on this powerful link between the number of cigarettes smoked by patients in London hospitals correlated with the probability that those patients in London hospitals were there for lung cancer. And Dole pointed out, written with a co-author, that it was a really striking, what you would call, and I would call, a cross-section correlation. He didn't use that exact term. A few months later, the most famous statistician in the world, Ronald A. Fisher, R.A. Fisher, after whom the F-test is named, made fun of uh, Dole, said this was a spurious correlation, this was ridiculous. He said Dole would need a randomized controlled trial or some clean causality if he were to uncover any interesting relationship. And he published a paper lampooning uh, Dole, who of course then was unknown, and Fisher was famous all over the world, where he, he took data on Apple imports into Britain, and the, the rise in divorce in Britain and showed the strong correlation. He said, this is the kind of correlation that this young fool, Richard Doll has come up with in the link between smoking and cancer. That was an obsession about causality. Of course, you and I know that there's only one problem with what the world's greatest statistician was saying. He was completely wrong. He was completely wrong as a substantive matter. Methodologically, of course, it was not crazy. Unfortunately, we've reached the point in so many of the elite social science journals now, though I'm in favour of clean cause and effect, that Dole's paper would have been rejected if it had been an economics paper today, and millions of people would have continued dying prematurely. So the social scientists, like me, can learn from the much longer history of the natural sciences and the medical sciences, even though, of course, I'm not saying, I don't think anyone has said, but the natural sciences are in any sense perfect. But we can learn from their longer history. Last example, and then I'll stop. You all know that human beings run on a fuel called food. It's essentially all that we run on. Of course, we need a little bit of liquid to keep us going. And if one just stands back and thinks about humans, it's just obvious that surely that's the only thing that goes into us. That's our energy source. The nature of the Nutrients in the energy source is bound to be influential in how we act in the whole of our lives, including our social science lives. There's growing evidence that the nature of food, particularly the composition of certain kinds of fruit and vegetables, shows up in mood rather quickly, in mental health and other things. Yet as far as I know, there is no economics course in the country, sociology course even, political science course, that even raises the possibility for students that maybe what humans eat might influence what humans do. But we know that there's growing evidence that that's true. And again, that's a, to me, that's a worrying division uh, between the two halves. I'm going to close there. I think it's not sensible to 
complain about this, if that doesn't sound paradoxical. I don't think we're looking for villains or heroes here. Maybe it's natural that these disciplines have developed in this way. And for many decades, I took it for granted. But in principle, in 2014, you and I and the distinguished panel, we can think about how we might want to turn this lecture theatre into a, a triangular one where eventually the two walls overlap. Thank you very much. Okay, thank you very much, Andrew. Really forcing us to think um, very broadly there from everything from herd behaviour to thinking about what we eat and how that might affect our behaviour and our preferences. So I'm going to give the panel um, just a few minutes opportunity to respond to each other. Um, I thought two things were maybe on Patrick's point of actually we have changed. The houses might look the same, but beneath that we are actually different and social sciences have changed. I'd welcome panel members thoughts on on kind of why is that Patrick thinks that when maybe the others of you don't and then the flip side of that is Andrew saying no actually there are still these walls here these silos these walls that we're not breaking down so I'd like um, Patrick maybe to respond on that so Nicholas over to you anything you heard there that you'd like to respond on before we throw open to uh, the there's audience? so much I heard that I'd like to align myself with uh, Amanda's and Patrick's and um and Andrew's uh, comments, and if I just, I would just, I have all these scribbled notes and all these great examples that they each gave, and interesting metaphors, which I'm now going to uh, steal. Um, so, so I, I'd rather not sort of rehearse point by point, but I, I'd rather um, sort of say a couple of sort of extensions that were prompted by some of the things they said as I was scribbling. One thing is, is you know, when when we talk about how we can do better in the social sciences. I don't think we need to feel like we have to put on a hair shirt and flagellate ourselves, right? I don't think it means that, that uh, the natural sciences don't have problems. They have huge problems. Uh, for example, recently everyone's been talking about the replication crisis in psychology and economics. You may or may not be aware of this, but there's an enormous replication crisis in physics. They can't even get their background uh, gravitational forces straight. The whole multi-million, hundred million dollar bicep two experiment, oops, it turns out it's interstellar dust, or might be. So they're really trying to do that. The stem cell biologists are regularly retracting papers from science and nature because the data was just made up, uh, not because they got it wrong. So there's a lot of kind of self-examination that's taking place in other fields as well. So drawing attention to our need for self-examination doesn't mean that we uniquely have a problem and others don't. But equally, it doesn't mean that you know, we can just ignore our issues such as they might be, first thing. The thing I might want to say is that, and I didn't have a chance to say this, and it was prompted by the kind of excitement that Patrick and, and uh, Andrew and Amanda all communicated, and, and I was trying to communicate as well, is I think another reason we need to think about this and where the frontier is and how we organize ourselves is to lift up young people that are coming into the field. So I can't tell you how many young, excited, you know, a sociologist that, that wants to study computer science and is afraid that he or she won't get tenure if they do that, or an evolutionary biologist that's interested in behavior and is afraid that if he or she stays in, in, the, in the evolutionary biology department, they won't get tenure. These are silly things. These are silly but important constraints on the kind of enthusiasm and excitement that young people have. So I think another impetus to organizing ourselves better is to provide a kind of infrastructure for, for young people. And finally, I'll pick up on, I think it was Andrew said something, I can't remember which of the previous speakers, oh, it was Andrew, on this sort of two parallel walls. 
I think that the, uh, the separation of humans from the rest of the natural world is to, in a way, obey a kind of medieval division, right? That human beings were different than the other animals, right? That we are to be seen as a part. It's almost a kind of a, a theological kind of inheritance that we are still bound by. But why? I mean, just because it worked in the 13th century doesn't mean it needs to work today. Uh, the, the, the recognition that human beings are a part of the natural world and are like other animals in many, many regards shouldn't be seen by us as a threat, nor should it be seen by us as denigrating our humanity. I think we are also different than other animals, and identifying the ways in which we're the same and different is important. Great. Thank you, Nicholas. Uh, Amanda, you can pick up on, on the humans and the natural world issue there, but I, was, I wanted to ask you this issue of young people, because you mentioned yourself the kind of pressure yeah, on young academics in particular to publish in a certain way. So did you have any other thoughts on kind of young people coming into social science? Yet? I think one of the things that the research assessment exercise or the research excellence framework or whatever we'll all recognise the different names, um, I suppose is highlighted, and this happens everywhere in the world, actually. I don't know if you know what this is. Yeah. Um, and um, I suppose what's happened is that you've got to get into some four-star journal. So, so people will try and find this much difference between um, an argument um, so that they can add it onto one that's already in there. And then that flatters the, the author... Um, with the with one part of the original story, and in a sense, it's about it's about flattery, and you think you, your chance of getting in there if you just build a tiny weeny bit on it will, will be great, and if you come out with something completely different or you deviate a great deal, you would just get slapped down. So so the whole system is set up not to deviate wildly, i.e., which is mad, not to come out with really fantastic new ideas that really say something different about the world or look at the world differently. If we think about other, fi- other fields, if we think about technology fields, I mean, that's absurd. You know, Google's whole organisation is set up to try and, you know, you go to the toilet and some explosion happens to try and think, oh, an idea might happen when you're having a crap if you have an explosion at the same time. I mean, they're obsessed with coming up with new ideas. And in a way, that's the sad thing, is that we've become so focused. It doesn't mean that we don't get assessed, we don't get reviewed. But maybe what we need to do is actually be assessed on how different, how much does your idea deviate from somebody else's, or from the field, or does it stretch into somewhere else? We need to go back to, the, to looking at ideas and not journal publications. Now, I'm not saying that journal publications aren't important, because they are, obviously, and they're always going to be. We need some way of controlling quality. We have to have that. But I just think I want us to go back to ideas. So, Patrick, your point about actually we are different. We might, we might the name might mean the same, but actually behind the scenes we're different. That doesn't sound to me like we're that different. If Amanda's still saying you still have to do the same thing, you still, it's just you have to publish. You have to say a tiny, a new thing that's very tiny bit different from something that somebody else has said before. That's not different, is it? Well, I mean, I think how people are publishing is changing very rapidly. The, uh, the, 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 the old days of people, you know, obsessing about journal impact factors are gone. And the correlation between what? journal impact factors... Well, amongst intelligent people, anyway. <laughs> the correlation between journal impact factors and citations is the lowest it's been for 40 years. You wouldn't get a job here without that, let's be honest, right now. Well, that's, you know, not everything that happens here is a good thing, you know. <laughs> so, I mean, your, your data were very interesting, Amanda, because they showed that the top ten journals in most of the social sciences are nerd journals. You know, they're anally retentive uh, you know, uh, obsessive uh, journals that can't keep, even recognise global warming as a, as, a, as, a, as a problem. 
Uh, and that's that's just quite widely typical of the of the critique of the the elite journals, and including in the um, in the physical sciences, there's the, you know the strongest correlation between the status of a journal journal impact factor is with the number of articles that are retracted, and there are increasing numbers of people who believe that um, you know uh, anything published in the top ten journals in the physical sciences is likely to be wrong. And the reliability of stuff published in the medium-level journals is actually much, much higher. So the trend for people to cite non-elite journals reflects the decreasing reliability, relevance, usefulness, and overall, you know, goodness of what's in elite journals. And that's a structural problem in many disciplines. It's particularly a structural problem in the in the social sciences, I think. Okay, Andrew, I'm going to give you the last word on the panel before we go to the audience, but you said that you're a fan of Nicholas. You talked about the walls. To what extent are you a fan of Patrick's? Patrick is a very old friend of mine, and I wouldn't (laughs) ever argue with him too much. Um, But I suppose I'm more in favour of the Christakis view than the Dunleavy view on this. However, as, as I hope I implied... I just think of this as an issue or a set of issues that we're all working on t- towards on the same side. And it's very hard to know how to peer review stuff in a world where, of course, the, the humans who've gone before and have written the so-called elite articles tend to be the ones called upon, at least disproportionately, to referee the next generation. And as a scientific investigator... I'm conscious, I hope everyone is conscious of how hard it is to sign off and be pleased about work that overturns Oswald 1979 <laughs> and the rest. You, I can't see a, a, a genuine, simple answer to that, but we just have to do our best as disinterested truth seekers to allow the young people's ideas to come along and topple us off our apple carts. That's an absolutely essential part of being a scientific investigator, letting the young do that. Okay. Right, so now it's your opportunity to topple the panel off their apple cart. I've got one question at the back. Have we got any microphones in the room, or we just shout? Yeah. So, uh, gentlemen, I'm going to take two first, and then, so do put your hands up again. So the gentleman right at the back, and then um, I'll take the gentleman here in the striped rugby shirt afterwards. Up there with the... Uh, red um, what's the word parcel lanyard lanyard that's the word thank you yes Yes. yeah I'm Tony Barnett I'm from the London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine I used to be here Um, I still have an association here a little bit of of biography I I think this is really an important moment because um, I've just had a paper under review with the curious and slightly 18th century title, Some Considerations Concerning the Introduction of Social Variables into Epidemiological Modelling of Infectious Disease. It was submitted to a fairly prestigious and actually medium-level social science public health journal. I won't embarrass them by mentioning the name because it's still under review after much revision. The authors of this paper, with that curiously 18th century title, consisted of the following skills. Two social anthropologists, two sociologists, two epidemiologists, 
one veterinary epidemiologist, a physicist, and a mathematical zoologist. That paper went through 22 peer reviewers, I am told, by the editors of the journal, none of whom claimed... We thank you for keeping British academics employed. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Except some of them were American, I understand. Uh, We thank you also. (laughs) (laughs) We try, we try. The people complained that they did not understand or have the competence to review the paper... And when we saw the comments that finally came back from the three people who were foolhardy enough or foolish enough or just (laughs) distray enough to review the paper, most of it was actually whinging, disciplinary-based stuff that you didn't cite this or that. The point of that little piece of intellectual history about which I am obviously incensed, (laughs) is that there are such strong institutional factors that it's all very well for us to say we should give the younger folk the opportunity. But I joined a school based on interdisciplinary studies at a university in the 1970s, and we worked very happily in a kind of vaguely interdisciplinary way with social sciences and environmental scientists and natural scientists, and we wrote things together. And then along came the RAE and the RAF, and everybody retreated into their silos. And there they were, fighting at each other as the resources grew smaller in the 1980s, and they all moved into various levels of seniorities as professors of this specialist social science or this special environmental science, and the interdisciplinary stuff went out of the window. And those things are still here. In our deeply interdisciplinary... There are de- I count myself and present myself as an undisciplined social scientist. <laughs> Very proudly, I am undisciplined. But there are hugely strong institutional factors which will prevent this kind of thing that you are talking about, which I admire enormously and sympathise totally with, from being successful. Because the funding process, the politics of research, the theology of meaningless citation, the number of times I've asked PhD Viva candidates, why have you cited this? And they say, not because it contains evidence, but because that person said something that my teachers told me was important. The institutional structures cannot possibly be underestimated. Okay, I'm, I said I was going to take two questions. <laughs> <laughs> Tony's question was so interesting. We're just going to take that one for now, but afterwards, um, keep coming with the interesting questions, but maybe just slightly shorter um, <laughs> questions in future. But um, some really, really getting to the heart of it, even if we agree with this, even if you want to shake up social sciences, when all of those institutional factors and barriers are there working against it, how do we make this happen? Patrick, I'm going to go to you first. Well, I'm familiar with this kind of, you know, complaint that people have made. But let's just face it, you know, you're already already making a big change because you're you're putting forward a a social science paper with eight or nine authors or something. That's a a big difference from the the classical uh, social science norm. So I think you're obviously in a very interdisciplinary place. And... um, there are really two big things that drive interdisciplinarity. The first is impact. 
out there in the real world, there are you know big organisations like government and business and uh, so on, and they have joined up problems. They have a joined up problem how to cope with a, an Ebola epidemic. That that that's not going to be solved by you know medical knowledge. Uh, it's got to be solved by a combination of organisational, technological, and other uh, social kinds of ways of, of of fixing the problem. So you know, just suddenly parachuting a few people in biological protection suits who look like space aliens into the middle of Sierra Leone's uh, worst areas is not going to sort out the out the problem. So I think you know, impact requires joined up solutions, and there are large areas of the uh, STEM sciences now that are doing sort of. Um, disguise social science and I don't blame them because they, they get access to much bigger budgets if it's classified as STEM than if it's... If you look at something like global warming mitigation, almost everything that's going on there and what looks like a scientific field is really social science. So I think there's a lot of, of, of far more joining up and uh, far more commonality of action uh, than you might think. Um, and partly this reflects the fact that uh, Nicholas... Uh, made a point about you know the artificiality of focusing on human uh, systems but then he said humans are part of the natural world well they're not humans live in an artificial world now we're living in an artificial planet the natural world is shrinking away it's just a few David Attenborough documentaries so you've got to get real with you know what is actually shaping the things that we're, we're influencing so that's the first thing and the second thing is that there's an incredible truth about every discipline, whatever, if it's economics or social science or, or in the STEM sciences. It has three areas. It has a dead heart where nobody's doing anything except replication work at vast expense because they're a professor and they can have a team of ten people. And on the whole, it doesn't change anything. It just tells us that the world is pretty much the same as it was last year. For, it gives reassurance for people who have high anxiety. And around this, we have an area of moderate advance where people, intelligent people, do their PhDs. And then around that, we have the interzonal area between disciplines where all the funky people do the work. And that's a constantly recurring dynamic. So, you know, although there are institutional barriers, there are very strong pushes for interdisciplinary impact on the one hand. And where, where is that intellectual advance? to be made, and it's always on the margins of disciplines, never in the middle. Okay, I'm not going to ask every panel member to answer every question, but Nicholas, I just want to come to you quickly. Um, you could hear Tony's frustration there. Is this something that you recognise? Is this a UK thing, or is this a global issue? No, just a quick response. I'll just say that uh, it's precisely because institutions are so conservative and are, have so much inertia and cause the kind of problems that you outline that we, and because we social scientists know this, that we need to think on endlessly about the reformation of our institutions um, and about how to align them to permit the kind of work that is useful, as Patrick is saying, and as Andrew and Amanda are saying, and, um, and valuable. So two questions. I'm going to go to Andrew. Two questions. You can answer the first one, maybe, Andrew, which is this um, the gentleman's question there about why are we always comparing uh, the shake-up of social sciences to natural sciences? Shouldn't we be asking social sciences themselves, are you answering the big questions? Yes. And in particular, in light of the economic crisis, are we actually answering that in the way we should be? Yes. I must say, I think you put it very well, and I'm, I'm entirely on your side. 
the, the reason that a number of us talked about possible links between the social sciences and the nat natural sciences, well, partly it's because we think they, they should be stronger, but also Nicholas's New York Times article was particularly about that. So that's one reason why I, I can't speak for others, focused on that. But, of course, the ultimate criterion must be are social scientists helping to make the world a better and more interesting place? That is the, the absolute question, and I think Amanda deserves credit uh, for using that criterion, if you think about it, because she said, um, what's happening to CO2 emissions, and are we actually doing much work in social science and so on? On your, I think, very fair point about economics wasn't much use over the crisis, I'm paraphrasing, then I think that's absolutely right. And my own take on it, gosh, I can, it would, uh, I can speak for a long time on that topic, you can guess, is that, curiously enough, the problem is not that economists got it wrong or don't understand the economy fully, although I think it's a shame that that's true. The problem was that they convinced themselves and went around the world saying this endlessly, that we had actually worked out how the economy functions and there was never a need now to worry about a crisis happening. That was the real difficulty in my view and I think my profession made a huge mistake in that regard and it needed to learn and has learned a bit more common sense and humility. I'll, I'll leave it at that. Okay. Amanda, I want you to come in there. So on this question of um, social sciences, why aren't they? Expand a bit more. Why aren't they answering these big questions? What's stopping them from looking at these big questions? I think, um, I don't know if I'm going to exactly ask that, but I'm, just very quickly, when I used to work at the LSE, um, we used to have a bit of a laugh because you'd get people in two offices, next, sometimes a few doors away from each other, and they'd both be working on exactly the same topic. But from a just, and they were all social scientists, but from a slightly different perspective, and they, and they didn't even know each other. And you know, they might be in, in the senior dining room, and, and that 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 was always a bit of a laugh. I mean, kind of sad actually. And I think, I mean, just going back to the thing about language, and just very very quickly, we're we're, we're all social beings, and we all compare ourselves to, to the next person, and we feel much safer using the ideas of homophily. It's much easier for me to pick somebody who looks just like me, who says the same things as me, and kind of justifies my existence, who speaks the same language and all that kind of stuff. Well, scientists, unfortunately, social scientists and in the humanities are exactly the same. Why? Because they're all very human, and even if they weren't, if they're animal, they'd probably be doing the same thing too. So I suppose that's the thing we have to break away from, in a sense, is we have to try and understand. And one of the areas that, just very quickly, is speaking in plain English. I mean, you use geography, or someone wrote to us from the Time Flyer article saying that geography was a really good example, actually, of an area where they've kind of broken through these barriers. But actually, I know some social geographers, and I swear to God, I cannot understand a goddamn word they are saying. <laughs> and, and, the, and that's the thing, is if, if we really want to be understood, and I write academic articles in very plain English, and some people probably look down on me for that, actually. But that's my point, is if you really want to understand, then cut the jargon, speak in plain English. Okay, so that takes us on then to kind of what Abney's question was about, which is about um, language and do we understand each other? And also, I'm curious, how many economists are in the room? Okay, so we have a, we have a few economists here, not many. Patrick, I'm going to ask you to respond to Abney because he said he didn't understand your slides. Is this an issue of language? Why aren't economists, for example, as engaged in this if we don't think they are? And is there something we can do at the undergraduate level 
to start helping with that kind of language barrier? Well, I'm not sure I understood his question or indeed his discourse. <laughs> but insofar as I got anything out of it, it was something on the grounds of, you know, disciplinary siloing is a real problem. And it particularly is a real problem in economics. I agree. Um, but I think, um, you know, all of the social sciences are changing and, and moving very rapidly. And uh, one of the points that uh, Amanda just made was about the importance of communicating better. And I think if we look at the STEM sciences, one area where they've been way ahead of us is the development of proper science communication. Science communication practices are much better, mm-hmm. much more accessible, much more studied and, and taken much more seriously. Now, we can see that LSE, at least, is doing a lot, I think, in terms of improving science communication. We have some of the best blogs in the world. We have some of the biggest, uh, you know, visits. We have uh, things like Centerpiece, which is produced by the economics department, which is written by a journalist on behalf of economists, and things like that. So we're doing our best. Uh, There's a long way to go, but uh, there's still, you know, uh, very important signs of progress. And I think the, the way in which... Uh, the whole digital social media world is taking off uh, is, is incredibly stunning and, and has, is some of the, the, the most you know, earth-shatteringly interesting uh, changes that I've seen in academia. If you'd come to me four years ago and said, hi, I've got this um, software package and you have to communicate in 140 characters or less and said to me, how well will this go down in academia? I'd have said, you've got... You've got no hope, you know. Uh, and yet uh, Twitter is now a very, very important part of academic communication, especially in the social sciences. So I think, you know, all kinds of things can change and uh, are changing in front of us. And people who bleat on about too much disciplinary siloing, I think, are uh, a little bit living in the past. Uh, I think, you know, the new generation of, of people is much more interdisciplinary. And similarly the reasons why, it's, it's just much easier. So, you know, physical scientists can cover a huge realm of information now, and they do cover a huge realm of information. The social sciences are catching up, and uh, I'm sure we'll be able to uh, match the progress. OK, I'm going to come to the audience in a minute, give lots of people a chance to speak, but Nicholas, anything on those two no, questions? OK, so we've got two questions here, but then um, quick questions, and then I'm just going to let people comment a little bit on what they've heard already. So gentlemen there, and then gentlemen here in the front. I just com- comment I would like to make, if it's possible. And um, have I got your approval? It's a brief comment I'd like to make. Right. Uh, I, I agree that uh, social science uh, could be changed, whether by shaking or stirring. I'm not so sure. <laughs> and uh, the, the comment is that... Um, uh, there is an enormous variety and diversity of activities in the social sphere performed by objects capable of exhibiting will and emotions as well as performing function, specific functions and uh, wouldn't it be nice to be able to um, um, establish or suggest concepts which are invariant throughout this diversity and variety and coupled with a suitable symbolism capable of generating models which could be exposed to um, at least thought, exp- <coughs> thought experiments. Now, this change 
could be perhaps performed through uh, system science, which hasn't been mentioned here, and I'm not so sure if people are sufficiently aware of this development of uh, the structural view of the world of uh, system science that I'm trying to uh, advocate. Nobody takes the slightest notice. Okay, okay, we're gonna, I'm going to hold that one. That's my James Bond question there, shaken or stirred. We've got a gentleman here and a gentleman in the front row. So could you come, come here to the guy in the front? Yeah. Any ladies want to ask a question? I was going to say, there are 50% yeah, really? women in the audience, yeah. Yeah. but they're not raising their hands. So, gentlemen here first. I can't, I can't do much about that. But, uh, um, I wanted to ask a very specific question, actually. So, um, Andrew Oswald mentioned that we might be too obsessed with uh, causality. And uh, I thought that was an interesting uh, suggestion, and uh, it's potentially in tension with some of the other things that have been said today. Um, uh, in particular with regard to big data and experiments and so on. So, in a way, I would like to hear more. Are we too obsessed with causality? Should we be more open-minded about potentially more inductive research methods? Should we be more open-minded about speculations that are just based on correlation? Or, I mean, is this a real problem that is holding us back? Okay, thank you, gentlemen. There, and then I'm going to take the lady in front as well, and then we'll pick up on these four questions. So, gentlemen, there. Um, yeah, it's this is the sort of the. I was really surprised that uh, not a single member uh, on the panel, and nobody in the audience so far either, has actually wondered about teaching. I mean, it's it's quite it's actually quite scandalous that it hasn't been mentioned at all, um, because teaching should be 50% of what universities do. Uh, it, it does have, you know, obviously the money is in research. Um, and there is this big distinction between teaching and research universities, and the prestige is also with the research universities, and we are here at a research university, so, and the people on the panel are, of course, all at except for the one person who's actually been very critical with the climate change. That person has a strong teaching agenda. Um, so maybe if the panel could just... There's a huge disconnect between universities and the communities they serve. And of course, students could be that bridge. Um, there's a huge disconnect between universities and industries. And of course, students could be that bridge. Uh, does the panel have any opinion on the importance of teaching and how the social sciences should be shaken up so that teaching you know, gets back into where it should be? Okay, we did have some, a comment here about undergraduate teaching, and is that where some of the shake-up begins? Lady in front here wanted the question, and then I'm going to come back to the panel. So two rows down from you, across in the middle. So can you stick your hand up so you can see what thanks? Thank you. I hope you don't see me as the voice of the woman in the room now, because that's <laughs> too much. No, we time. just picked on you because we can see you that way. Right. Um, um, with the qualification that I'm an undergraduate student, so I have no claim on expertise or anything. But I do... That's a very good thing. Right. Um, I do development studies, and I think the great thing about it is that it takes from economics, politics, sociology, etc., um, and kind of doesn't see them as separate disciplines, but uses them, you know, together to try and get somewhere. Usually doesn't get anywhere, I don't think, but that's another matter. But that's made me think, do you think that the divisions that we see um, within the social sciences, within, for example, between economics and politics, or politics and sociology, are those useful? Or do you think that they should be addressed and maybe 
done away with uh, in some sense. Thank you. Okay, so let's take the first two because they kind of link really, I think. I want the panel's views on teaching and students and how students might be the bridge and some of the solution here and, and linking on to the last question there which is um, about should we get rid of all these divisions completely? Nicholas, I'm going to go to you first. Well, um, it's really hard to intelligently summarize in all of those comments and try to say something that people don't, I mean most of you know what I'm about to say, but I think there's a tendency f- for us to see false dichotomies uh, between uh, discovery and application, one person asked, and and research and teaching, another person asked. And I, I don't think we need to dichotomize the world uh, that way, actually. And I think the great mission of universities is the discovery, preservation, and dissemination of knowledge. And the knowledge is disseminated to the students and to the greater public, which, of course, is application. We live the lives that we do. Why? It's tax dollars come to us and the bequests of wealthy people, not so we can sit here and have a nice intellectual life, but so that we can do something useful on average, not every single member of the faculty, but on average uh, for society. Now, that useful thing may involve the preservation of Sanskrit. Somebody in this country needs to know how to speak Sanskrit forever, as far as I'm concerned. And it may involve malacology or the study of soft-shelled you know, animals. Somebody in this nation should be an expert in this topic. Uh, but we don't need necessarily dozens or hundreds of people. And I, don't, I pick those because they're esoteric. I mean, there are many examples in, in the social sciences as well. That's the preservation part. The discovery part is really important because I think, I think that the most exciting thing you can do for a young person is you can grab them by the shoulders and you can move them to where you think the scientific frontier is. And you can say, stand here and look out. I mean, who the hell wants to be looking back uh, towards the middle, the dead heart. And I think the ability to do that is, is rare, uh, it, but it's not so rare. And I think, I think it would be a good value of ours to strive for that, to try to position ourselves on the frontier and try to put our students there. And so I think there's a link, therefore, between teaching and discovery that's very important. Um, the discovery uh, um, Oh, someone said, uh, so on the Ebola example, you know, I think there's also a sense in which you may be able to discover something and not be able to do anything about it, and that's still valuable. I'm totally in favor of basic research. You know, you may learn a lot about Ebola, and it's really useful to do it, but there may be nothing we can do with the knowledge that we acquire, and we may be totally unable to intervene uh, in the epidemic, and I still see that as uh, phenomenally valuable. I could give many examples of basic science which was thought useless and then discovered to be incredibly valuable. All of you will know that. I'll say one thing about causality, and then I'll say two more things, and then I'll shut up. Um, the causality thing, there are many, you know, Galileo's, uh, you know, uh, work was completely a causal. He says, oh, I hear about this telescope that's been invented. I make one myself. I look up at the sky, and I suddenly see all these things, right? Watson and Crick's famous paper on DNA was totally uh, not causal. It was a description of nature, right? These are phenomenally important things to be able to describe nature well. You don't need experiments to be able to do that. You don't necessarily need to be able to make causal statements. You can describe nature well. So I think this, and as Andrew was saying, this like false, you know, this this obsession with causality, uh, I think causality is really important. We don't need to dichotomize a world and either you're making observation or you're making causal inference. I think that's another foolish uh, dichotomy. Uh, the last thing I'll say is, you know, it's, it's been very weird for me. You know, when I was 20, I made these decisions in my life about what I thought was important. And uh, here I am, 52, and I'm still bound in some sense by those decisions. And I want to go 
and slap my 20-year-old self and say, what the hell were you thinking uh, when you made these choices? And so I would like to see a world in which uh, 50-year-old, all of you who are in your 20s, when your 50s are not still bound by arbitrary, idiosyncratic decisions that were either in the institutions around you or uh, the choices that you made. So I see no reason that these, these disciplinary boundaries should confine what we do or the careers that we have. So if the physicists want to come and study the social sciences, God bless them. They are welcome. We can teach them a few things. We can learn some things from them and so forth. If the sociologists want to go to computer science and work at Facebook or they want to go work in the evolutionary biology department, great. I see no reason to stop that. Thank you. Andrew, I want you to pick up on the causality point, but also if you've got any comments on teaching and also any members of the panel as well to come back on thought experiments and system science. Have you heard of this? What do you think of this? If I may, I'll concentrate on the causality issue. And of course, it's a, a, a natural question to ask. And I hope it's obvious to you that I'm greatly in favor of understanding causal processes. Of, of course, I am. I've seen so many fashions in my time as, as an economist, and there's always what I would call overshooting, just like in real economies, actually. Uh, everything goes too far. We teach rules of thumb to students, and then they pass them on in a more extreme way, and, and they close down in their minds other ways of, other ways of thinking. That's another question. The key... The, uh, I guess the key thing... I, I'd like to think I've learned or I would pass on to any young researchers the most valuable attribute is having an open mind and being able to tolerate ideas that you found intolerable at first glance. I've made mistakes along these lines many times in my life and I've had to retract my initial foolish reaction. It's incredibly hard for human beings to do this. But if you just try to remain open-minded about different kinds of evidence, then you don't need these rigid rules of thumb. But I'm not saying it's easy for me, and presumably it's not easy for anyone, but that's what I somewhat pass on, just general open-mindedness, not closing ideas down as soon as you hear about them. OK, Patrick. Yes, well, maybe I could just answer the, the question about causality and, and linked to the person who mentioned system science because I think systems uh, concepts and, and approaches in many ways undermine the whole essence of causality because you know once we have a, a complicated system it may not be particularly useful really to want to know what causes something and, and part of the uh, the interesting aspect of the big data agenda is really a kind of engineering sort of control, control orientation. So perhaps we might make progress in large areas of social behaviour, and particularly when we're thinking about public policy and governmental regulation and so on, if we just knew a little bit more about you know, what is linked to what, and uh, if we press here, what happens over there? Now, we don't necessarily need to establish causality, and the whole concept of what causality means, I think, is, is slightly in debate. So, you know, economics has been pretty obsessed with retrospective causality, whereas when we move towards behavioural economics, we're really much more thinking of experimentally based uh, causality. And those two are, are quite different, I think, in the, in the way in which it operates. So I, I, I think we're moving away from being obsessed with causality. Causality taken to 
ludicrous levels, it's not helpful for understanding how to manage our civilization. And uh, it's not actually very worthwhile to try and trace out what is the independent influence of variable one or variable two if it's always constantly present in the context with lots of other variables that switch it on and off and uh, influence it in lots of different ways. So that's a kind of strange reductionist uh, uh, view. I think it's slightly the view that's in Nicholas's New York Times article, a reductionist approach to uh, things. And I think that's the way STEM science goes, especially in the USA where they don't have government funding and they can't keep overarching research going. They're a bit too donor-related, I think. So that would be the, the thing I'd worry about is uh, in Nicholas's uh, overall perspective, that we get to a kind of narrow front thing where we have a department of genopolitics, a department of neuroeconomics, and so on, and the integrative thing, which is just as important as discovery, and that's what systems theory really teaches you, is that integration is just as important as understanding the bits, um, uh, it lapses. So that's why I'm in favour of a broad front, social science advance, that increasingly meshes with stem science. Okay, Amanda, the last word on those questions. Well, just, yeah, picking up on the teaching, actually, I mean... Uh, People often say, because of the research I do looking at leadership, and, and one of the areas is university leadership, actually, and people often say, because I, I focus on research, oh, it's really um, people don't talk about teaching. And actually, I, I think because you don't mention teaching does not mean that you don't see that it's very, very important. Um, but I do think, certainly, in a, I work in a business school, and the way that, that we teach is really assessed very, very, I mean, these people pay a hell of a lot of money, as they do here, actually, at master's level, and teaching is very, very important. But it's interesting, because if you look at the evidence, um, it seems to be tipping as far as I know, but, but I think it's very, very open, the jury's still out, about whether non-researchers made better teachers or researchers made better teachers. I think, uh, personally, I prefer research-led teaching, and the one thing that I think is important, and I, I find interesting, I'm, I'm head of academic recruitment for our MBA programme at CAS, and I find it really interesting that I interview these, these young people, not so young people necessarily, from all around the world. And they've been on my website, they've looked at my research, they always ask me questions about my research in these Skype interviews and stuff. It's amazing and I, I think that's important. I think why we're having this debate about the enmeshing of the social science or how we do this is because it, it, it's, it, that's all going to come out in teaching. It's like discussing, I mean, going to talking about clothes, not that I'm interested in clothes or anything, but, you know, you might discuss um, ideas, but actually what, it's all going to come out in a garment that's going to be worn, and I see teaching as being, as what, you know, there's research, and teaching is another very important product of, of what comes out of research, actually, as far as I'm concerned, anyway. Okay, I'm looking at the clock, and we're out of time, I'm afraid, but I'm going to give the audience the last word here. So... Think very carefully. The panel won't have a chance to respond to what you're going to say. But if you think you have a burning comment or something that wasn't raised that you thought would be raised, I'm going to take two from the floor, and they will be the thoughts that you leave us with today. So I haven't taken any from this side. So these two gentlemen here, you're going to be our, our, our lasting thoughts from this evening. Thanks. How nice to have the last word. I, I'm in the philosophy department here where, where change is perhaps you would think more resisted than most. But contrary to Amanda's findings, we have a great stream of research being produced on global warming. Uh, and the single reason for that is because we've got funding for it. 
And outside of the institutional structure and careerism, funding decisions are pretty immune to what we get obsessed about because they're trying to answer real problems and they don't really care about what's going to advance your career. So it struck me that we didn't really discuss how funding affects things because I think it can actually smash barriers more effectively than anything else we've talked about. Okay, thank you. That was the penultimate thought. And here we go for the last one over here. So funding, you're right, we didn't touch on that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, I, well, I wanted to ask a question. Um, maybe you can write about this, uh, Nicholas. I was really curious. Um, you talked about this biological hurricane. You want behavioral gen, uh, evo-psych, all those things to come into social science. But those things are socially quite taboo. Like in this institution, it's a social faux pas to bring those things up. I uh, heard about Fisher, yeah, the political legacy of people like Fisher is, is part of the reason for that. I was wondering, how are you going to get over the hump? If you can't answer it now, it would be great to write a blog post or something about it. But that seems like a really big challenge, is this, this taboo aspect of it. Okay, so we're leaving the evening with Nicholas having some homework. We look forward to that <laughs> blog. And it's a good sign. There were still some hands. That's a good sign for the evening. So I'd just like to thank you all for all of your questions and your engagement. And a very big thank you to the panel for some really, really great discussion.